Good day, and welcome to this bonus episode of Understand Murdoch, a podcast from the Post and Courier, where our award-winning reporters bring you the latest news and analysis from the story of drugs, deceit, and death in South Carolina's low country. I'm Glenn Smith, editor of the newspaper's Watchdog and Public Service team. I'm here with Avery Wilkes, an investigative reporter who's been covering this Murdoch case with me for well over a year now. Hi, Avery. Howdy. Uh, In this episode, we are going to break down the latest in the Alec Murdoch double murder case and all of the legal battles that have been waged in recent weeks ahead of that January 23rd upcoming trial in Colvin County. There have been a lot of evidentiary motions and other kinds of filings in recent weeks. And while some of these are probably just posturing and attempts to influence the narrative of the case before trial, uh, the filings and hearings since the July murder uh, indictments have also revealed a lot about the state's case against Murdoch and about the former Hampton lawyer's defense as well. So the most recent thing that's happened uh, was the motions hearing last Friday, December 9th in Colleton County. Um, first of all, just want to say hello to our listeners around the country. Our analytics have shown that we we have have quite a few listeners in states uh, from from one coast to the next. For those unfamiliar with Colleton County, it is a county in the southern part of South Carolina. It's home to about 38,000 people. Uh, Avery was in a town called Walterboro, which is the county seat. That's home to about 5,500 people. And that will be the location where the double murder trial is expected to take place next month. Uh, Colleton is a, is a rather rural county. It's next to Hampton County, which has been the Murdoch seat of influence for many, many years. Colleton is a very rural place, uh, but it's also right along Interstate 95, which means it's had its share of uh, drug problems over the years, drug running through there. It's also had a problem with uh, rural gangs for a while back a few years ago, which caused the state law enforcement division to move one of its regional offices there. Um, The gangs and the drugs factor into the Murdoch story, but that's for another day. Anyway, Avery, you were there for that 90-minute hearing. What were the main points that were discussed? Yeah, there were a few issues that were up for debate, uh, and and this had been a very highly anticipated hearing, uh, given all of the sort of flurry of motions that have been filed in recent weeks leading up to this hearing. Uh, One of those issues was the Murdoch defense team's motion to compel evidence related to the state's high-impact blood spatter evidence. Uh, and to request an evidentiary hearing about the the legitimacy and the veracity of that evidence. Uh, that, of course, is about a report that was produced for the state by a retired Oklahoma police officer that purportedly found more than 100 spots of blood spatter on Murdoch's white T-shirt that he was wearing on the night of the slayings. Now, those marks would indicate that Murdoch was very close by and perhaps even holding the guns himself as his wife and son were shot and his blood and other matter were ejected into the air from those gunshot wounds. Another motion that was discussed was Murdoch's request to be unshackled during the remainder of his pretrial hearings. Uh, and then there, this wasn't a motion, but it was a moment uh, and an announcement by Judge uh, Clifton Newman that the portrait of Murdoch's grandfather, who was the late 14th Circuit solicitor, Buster Murdoch Jr., would be removed from the back of the courthouse where it usually hangs uh, for the upcoming trial. And then the last big topic up for debate was Murdoch's request for a bill of particulars, uh, which is a really uh, sort of old bit of law that that relies on. Uh, It's kind of bizarre to see that motion 
uh, introduced in this case. Uh, and it was basically requesting an explanation of how the state plans to introduce evidence regarding Murdoch's alleged motive for the slayings. Uh, but then that request was essentially mooted when the attorney general's office fired back with a 23-page motion detailing the state's theory of Murdoch's alleged motive. And that's essentially that Murdoch killed his wife and son in order to portray himself as a victim and to distract from a series of inquiries that were uh, allegedly about to expose his financial crimes. So instead, uh, the two sides at Friday's hearing debated essentially whether and how much of Murdoch's alleged financial crimes should be admitted at the murder trial as evidence against him. So they definitely covered a lot of ground with the trial just over a month away. What were your overall takeaways from that hearing? Yeah, the the pretrial momentum has certainly swung back and forth a few times uh, since the July indictments. As these hearings have been held, as motions have been filed, uh, headlines have been written, and as leaks have come out regarding um, you know, either side of the case. This hearing felt like a win for the Murdoch camp. Uh, they got almost everything they wanted from the judge, including for the state to divulge its theory of their client's alleged motive for the slayings. They also got state grand jury chief prosecutor Creighton Waters to admit some possible problems with a major piece of evidence against Murdoch, which was the blood spatter analysis. And we'll see in the coming weeks how strong of a blow they they really landed uh, with regard to that. On the other hand, I thought that Waters' performance in the hearing was, was really interesting. Um, you hear a lot from people in the legal community about, you know, how Waters and the state might be outmatched uh, at the upcoming trial by Murdoch's defense team, Dick Carpulian and Jim Griffin, some really experienced lawyers who are known for their charisma and charm and personality and their ability to relate to a jury, as well as just the sheer number. You know, we're talking about hundreds of jury trials that they've that they've tried over the years. But, you know, Waters really put on a show at this hearing. Um, He was going off the top of his head through this 23 page motion, uh, point by point, paragraph by paragraph, sometimes word by word. Um, he was using hand gestures and, and voice inflections to great effect, almost like a Southern Baptist preacher. Uh, and then every time he would accuse Murdoch of something, he would sort of, you know, shuffle to his right kind of dramatically and jab his finger at the defendant repeatedly, uh, who was just a few feet away. So I, I thought it was a really strong performance by him. And, you know, maybe that will put some of the some of the outside concerns and outside naysaying to bed uh, ahead of this trial. So let's go through each of those motions you just mentioned. We can start with the easiest one, the motion to unshackle Murdoch during the pretrial hearings. Why did Murdoch's attorneys request that? And why did Judge Newman grant it? Sure. I'm, I'm sure part of the reasoning for requesting it has to do with Murdoch's convenience and his comfort at these hearings. Uh, but Murdoch's attorneys also made the case that having Murdoch photographed and videoed by the media in shackles at all these hearings would essentially predispose potential jurors in Colleton County toward seeing him as a violent criminal who needs to be restrained. And uh, in their motion, they actually cited a previous case where Judge Newman had handled in which he had ruled that the shackling of a defendant was prejudicial ahead of trial. So Judge Newman obviously agreed in this case. He even gave them props for citing one of his own previous cases from more than a decade ago. And uh, and Murdoch, when he arrived at Friday's hearing, was free of restraints. 
and, and Newman revealed that he had sent word to law enforcement ahead of time that he was going to grant that motion and that, you know, Murdoch was not to be in shackles in uh, forums where the media is going to be present. Okay. The other one I think we can get through quickly is Judge Newman's decision to remove the oil portrait of Buster Murdoch Jr., Murdoch's grandfather, from the back of the courtroom. Why did he go ahead and do that? You know, he didn't really give an explanation, but I know the portrait had become a favorite sort of scene setting device by state and national media uh, who have descended on Walterboro for this case. It's a pretty stark signal of how powerful the the Murdoch name has been for more than a century around these parts of South Carolina, and also how far Murdoch himself has fallen and all that he's done to to tarnish that family legacy. Obviously, Buster Murdoch Jr. was the longtime top elected prosecutor in this in this area in the 14th Circuit. He reigned over the the, the circuit for 46 straight years. Uh, except for uh, a small stretch of time where he had resigned because he was implicated and later acquitted in a federal moonshining sting. Um, more on that probably in future coverage. Uh, but uh, but but obviously he's someone who who helped build the Murdoch legacy into what it is seen as today. Um, and judges, of course, are always looking to insulate their cases from any possible outside influence or perception. So it's clear that's what Newman was trying to do here. You know, trying as best as he can to ensure Murdoch gets the same version of justice that any other defendant would get. And he did actually cite a case in Virginia in which a judge had taken a similar step. And I, I did some research uh, over the weekend and actually found a few cases in Virginia from late 2020 in the aftermath of George Floyd, where judges removed portraits of, of white judges and in one case of Confederate General Robert E. Lee before certain trials. Interesting. One of the biggest items on the agenda Friday was the high-impact spatter. Can you explain what that is? Sure. Experts say that impact spatter is what is discharged into the air. Uh, It's blood, potentially other types of matter, by a gunshot wound. Uh, Theoretically, this kind of spatter would especially be present in a close-range shotgun blast, like the one that killed Paul Murdoch, uh, in and around the feed shed near the family's dog kennels at their Moselle estate. Essentially, a high-velocity impact, like a gunshot, would spatter droplets of blood all over nearby surfaces. Um, Spatter analysis is generally accepted as evidence when it is left on hard surfaces like floors, walls, uh, tables. But Murdoch's attorneys have said it's junk science to draw the same conclusions from apparent spatter marks on clothing. Now, we've known about this spatter evidence being part of the state's case against Murdoch for a few months now. Uh, That was first reported by Fitznews.com, but uh, recently has been the first time that that both sides have really acknowledged it on the record as as potentially a, a very big part of this upcoming trial. Recently, though, Murdoch's defense attorneys have attempted to blow holes in that spatter analysis. They pushed out a 96-page filing taking issue with an analysis by Tom Bevel, a retired Oklahoma police officer, found more than 100 marks of blood spatter on Murdoch's white T-shirt from the night of the killings. That filing, which included some heavily redacted exhibits, alleged that the state law enforcement division had manipulated Bevel into producing that report, which Murdoch's attorneys described as bogus for a number of reasons. For one, they found in the voluminous pretrial discovery Bevel's first draft of that analysis, and it found that there was no spatter on his shirt, 
Murdoch's attorneys alleged that sled agents pressured Bevel behind the scenes over the next two months to change his mind. That allegedly came in the form of Zoom calls and an in-person visit to Oklahoma. But according to Murdoch's attorneys, Sled didn't provide any new evidence to Bevel. He just sort of looked at the same photos again through Photoshop and came up with a drastically different conclusion. Another issue Murdoch's attorneys raised is that lab tests on parts of the shirt where Bevel supposedly found blood spatter came back negative both for human blood and for Paul's DNA. So Murdoch's team is saying that makes no sense. Right. How can he have blood spatter marks on his shirt if there's no blood there. And uh, if Paul's DNA, wh- which the spatter likely would have contained, isn't present. And, and also we should note that in our initial report about these questions, I reached out directly to Bevel and his forensic consulting firm, and Bevel declined to comment saying he doesn't publicly dis- discuss his cases except at trial. Good point. Murdoch's attorneys also complained that the shirt was effectively destroyed, rendered impossible to test further because of apparent sloppy testing by SLED's DNA lab that dyed the shirt a deep blue. That means Murdoch's defense team can't send the shirt to their own experts to have them do microscopic scans for the reported spatter marks. So how did this play out at the December 9th uh, motions hearing, Avery? It didn't appear to go well for the state. Harpulian, the defense attorney, ran through in great detail all those concerns you just mentioned. And he also took aim at Bevel himself. He noted that Bevel is a retired cop, not a scientist. He doesn't have any scientific degrees, but he does go around the country testifying in trials about impact spatter. Harputlian brought up a case in another state where Bevel testified about blood spatter and how it implicated the murder defendant, only for more conclusive DNA testing to exonerate that defendant entirely. Blood spatter, this guy's not a scientist. He looks at something and gives it sort of a rush act test. He originally looked at it and said, nah, no blood spatter. Then he photoshops it and says, yeah, blood spatter. We need to understand why he changed his mind. Harpulin also made the case that the discrepancies between the state's lab testing and this analysis make no sense because, as we mentioned, Paul was shot at point-blank range with a shotgun, which created a really gruesome head wound. We believe the forensics is going to show that whoever shot Paul Murdoch and basically blew his head off would be covered in blood, not just spattered. So how did uh, Creighton Waters, the prosecutor, how did he respond to all that? Normally, Waters goes to great lengths to defend the prosecution and the SLED investigation from the many attacks that Murdoch's team has lobbed against them over the past few months. But he didn't do that here. In fact, he worked to distance himself in the attorney general's office from SLED and the 14th Circuit Solicitor's Office, which initially handled this murder investigation, and some of the decisions that they made in those first three months. Waters noted on the record that the Attorney General's Office only got involved in September of 2021, which was three months into the investigation, and only after 14th Circuit Solicitor Duffy Stone recused himself. Uh, Waters also made clear that the AG's office had no interactions with Bevel and really nothing to do with this analysis at all. And Waters also indicated that the state is rethinking this evidence and whether it is even worth introducing the high-impact spatter analysis at trial, right? That's a fairly significant omission. That's right. Waters said, and I quote, we're in the process of assessing the viability of some of the information that's been gathered and how that affects this report and ultimately whether or not it is anything the state intends to offer, end quote. Waters also admitted that a November 2021 hematrace blood test of several cuttings from the shirt came back negative for human blood, which is what Murdoch's attorneys had said. 
Uh, but he admitted that that report wasn't provided to the attorney general's office. He said he didn't even know about it and get it until November 30th of this year, a year after the report was completed by SLED. And so when Murdoch's attorneys filed their motion uh, making these allegations, Waters seemed to be caught off guard and had to scramble over to SLED's offices in Columbia to figure out what was going on here. Well, and, and so ultimately, when this report has come to light, uh, the first thing that I did, of course, was talk to the SLED experts and talk to Mr. Bell. And I said, how do we assess this? Is this, uh, you know, how does this affect the report? Is it going to undermine the that aspect of the report? Is it going to, uh, the conclusions are still there, but maybe not as strong? Or is it something that, uh, that we need to not uh, pursue? So he said the state has started that process, but that was ongoing. And he said that Bevel was going through that same analysis himself uh, and that they would be assessing the legitimacy and effectiveness of the hematrace test that came back negative for human blood on the shirt. So after all that, uh, Waters said that he would assess the viability of this piece of evidence and whether they want to move forward with or without the blood spatter analysis being part of the state's case, which Again, you know, this is a big deal because this was seen as this really damning, incriminating piece of evidence against Murdoch. And now there's all these questions about whether the state is even going to be able to introduce it to trial. Wow, that's interesting stuff. So how did uh, Judge Newman rule at the end of all that? He granted the Murdoch team's motion to compel more evidence from the state related to this analysis. So the state is going to have to turn over emails and other communications between SLED and Bevel as well as any other presentations or draft reports that Bevel created during this process. So that should give Murdoch's team more of an idea of what influence, if any, SLED had on the Bevel analysis, and also an idea of what led Bevel to so drastically change his mind from there's no spatter on this shirt to there's more than 100 spots of spatter. So we should be able to get more of an idea of of how Bevel got from point A to point B over that two-month span. So for now, we're going to wait and see how the issues with that analysis play out. Moving on, the last major element of the case that came up on December 9th was Murdoch's alleged motive for killing his wife and son. What's the state's theory on why Murdoch would do that? In his 23-page filing and also at this December 9th hearing, Waters laid out a theory that the imminent risk that Murdoch's decade-long financial crime spree was about to be exposed and that that's what drove him to kill his wife and son. Um, In his arguments, Waters explained that the walls were very much closing in on Murdoch after a series of recession-era land deals went south and prompted him to begin borrowing millions of dollars and ultimately stealing millions of dollars from his clients and his law partners to cover his debts and his losses, uh, as well as his sort of extravagant lifestyle. Waters said that Murdoch had gotten away with it for years, uh, but there were a few inquiries that were simultaneously going on that were all about to expose him around the summer of 2021. Uh, For one, the uh, plaintiff's lawyer uh, who was leading the 2019 Mallory Beach wrongful death boat crash lawsuit was seeking a court order to compel Murdoch to disclose details of his finances. That would have included bank records and other disclosures that Waters said would have plainly shown that Murdoch was borrowing and stealing money and would have exposed his financial schemes. Um, That actually came after Murdoch's lawyers had claimed that he basically didn't have any money. And so Mark Tinsley, who was the Beach family lawyer, 
uh, was incredulous and uh, sought all of these records to see whether that was actually true. So that was going on and, and there was going to be a June 10th hearing in which a judge, you know, Tinsley would have asked a judge to force Murdoch to disclose all these details about his finances. And that, of course, was three days after the, the, the slayings on the Mozilla estate. At the same time, Murdoch's law firm, PMPED, had become suspicious that Murdoch was trying to hide his income from recovery in that Beach case. That suspicion was prompted that spring when the law firm learned that there was a huge fee missing from a case that Murdoch worked with another attorney, uh, Chris Wilson from Bamberg. Ultimately, the law firm was owed nearly $800,000, and they began questioning Murdoch and that attorney, Chris Wilson, uh, about where the money was, and they just couldn't get an answer out of them that made any sense. The law firm confronted Murdoch on the morning of June 7th, which was the date of the double murders, and demanded an answer that day about the missing fees. Murdoch did get out of that confrontation when he got a call that his father was being taken to the hospital with a poor prognosis, however. And of course, Buster Murdoch III would, would die a few days later. So essentially, Waters' case is that all these different inquiries are, are circling in on him. The walls are closing in. And you know he, his theory is that Murdoch killed his wife and son to distract from those inquiries and to buy himself time and to evoke sympathy for himself as the victim of an unspeakable tragedy. Um, and Waters said it was successful, that their deaths did buy Murdoch time to try to, uh, you know, cover himself from those probes. And he used that time to borrow even more money to try to paper over his shoddy finances and make those problems go away. So what's the importance of all this to the attorney general's office? Why are they presenting Murdoch's alleged motive now? I mean, the trial doesn't even start for another month or so. Yeah. In, in South Carolina, prosecutors don't technically need to establish motive to secure a conviction, but it's understood that in a circumstantial evidence case like this one, establishing a motive is a key hurdle in convincing a jury of the defendant's guilt. That's especially true in a case like this, where the defendant is accused of killing his wife and son. The jury is really uh, going to need to be convinced of the motive and that the motive was sufficient to drive a person to do that. I mean, just think about it. It's hard to believe that a person would kill their wife and especially their son. So the why in this case uh, could be just as, as important as the what, when, where, and how. And and this motion is obviously an effort to uh, you know try to make sure that they can get all of that, uh, all of that evidence of the alleged motive into uh, into evidence at the upcoming trial because it's such a huge part of the state's case. Yeah, and he's been charged with stealing nearly $9 million from clients, uh, his former law firm, associates, other people. And he hasn't gone to trial on any of those counts just yet. So he hasn't been convicted. There's still allegations. They're also technically, I guess, unrelated to the double murders, uh, what happened that day anyway. So the attorney general's office filing, they're essentially asking the judge to admit these financial crimes into evidence at the upcoming trial, since it's a key part of the state case, right? What's been the response from the Murdoch's team? That's right. The, the state wants to be able to show, as Waters said at the December 9th hearing, that this isn't just a murder case where state investigators took a closer look and found some extra financial crimes. Waters said this was primarily a white collar financial crimes case that 
culminated in a couple of gruesome murders. Uh, Murdoch defense attorney Jim Griffin got up and took some shots at the state's arguments. He said their logic doesn't make much sense. Um, you know, basically, why would a person who is trying to avoid these financial inquiries commit a couple of murders that were surely going to put him in the middle of a murder investigation as well? You know, that doesn't make sense as a, a logical way of, of getting out of the financial crimes. And it obviously didn't work because he's been indicted, like you said, on uh, some 90 different charges at this point. Um, Griffin also raised his voice at one point and claimed that this is just a transparent effort by state prosecutors to try to influence the jury against Murdoch at the murder trial by bringing in evidence of bad acts that are, according to Griffin at least, totally unrelated to the slayings. Uh, Griffin summarized Waters' arguments as, quote, he's a bad guy, judge. The jury needs to know he's a bad dude. And because he's a bad dude, we wouldn't put it past him to kill his wife and son, end quote. And how did Judge Newman rule on this issue? He didn't. He said he was going to take some time to consider it. So we will have to wait and see on that one. Uh, that said, I would be surprised if the state isn't able to get that evidence, at least, you know, some substantial chunk of it into the upcoming murder trial, because, again, it's such a big part of their case. So in closing, there are two major elements of the state's case against Alec Murdoch that are in flux, the impact spatter evidence and the state's theory of Murdoch's motive for the June 2021 slayings. For updates on that and more in the Murdoch saga, stay tuned with Post and Courier. You can follow us on Twitter at Post and Courier. You can find all of our latest coverage on our Murdoch landing page, postandcourier.com slash Murdoch. We would love if you could send questions, feedback, and tips to our Murdoch email address. That's Murdoch at postandcourier.com. We spell it all out. And also, please take a minute to leave us a review wherever you get your podcasts, especially if you like the show. We'll see you next time.